friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, this episode is another one in our End of Sport panel series where we talk about imperialism and sport with uh, two really insightful guests we were lucky to have, uh, Nikhil Palsing and Tyler Shipley, who talk us through really, you know, the history of imperialism, if you can believe it, um, how imperialism fits in their own scholarly contributions, and then the sort of intersections between sport and imperialism in terms of the ways in which um, imperialism shapes sport and also the role that sport plays in um, bolstering imperialisms themselves. Um, so I very much hope you enjoyed the episode, uh, and I would encourage you to, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, uh, follow the show on Twitter, and if you are feeling so inclined, if you would consider contributing to the show on Patreon, we would very much appreciate it. And with that said, uh, let's send it to the great conversation we had with Nikhil Pal Singh and Tyler Shipley. A. Shipley is a professor of society, culture, and commerce in the Department of Liberal Studies at Humber College Institute of Technology and Advanced Learning and author of the books Canada and the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, and Ottawa and Empire, Canada and the Military Coup in Honduras. Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, we also are joined by Nikhil Pal Singh, who is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and is faculty director of the NYU Prison Education Program. He is also author of the books Race and America's Long War, as well as Black is a Country, Race and the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy. Nikhil, really so glad to have you on today. Thanks for having me. So we've assembled um, you um, here today to draw on your expertise about imperialism and to think through how we could bring it into conversation with um, our interest in sport. And this is such a, a huge, huge topic, um, and it really isn't one that we've discussed enough, although we have a handful of, um, of episodes, um, some of which we'll link in the show notes that have started to talk about it. And you two have such an incredible amount of expertise to draw upon, or that we're hoping that you will draw upon. So to begin with, could you each give uh, listeners a brief, while this may be difficult, but a brief sense of your scholarly work and how you engage with the concept of imperialism in it? Uh, sure, yeah, you know, I, I, um, my work um, has sort of tended to focus on uh, Canada, which might come as a surprise to your American uh, listeners, but um, uh, Canada is, in fact, an imperial power, and um, as surprising as that might be for people in the U.S. to believe, it's a surprise to people in Canada often, too. Um, and so a lot of the work that I've done has been um, kind of within the dialogue about Canada itself, um, you know, speaking with other people located here to say, look, Canada is an imperial power. Canada behaves in that way. Um, it works with the United States, but it is not a supplicant of, it's not, uh, you know, beholden to the U.S. It works, um, you know, kind of in concert with the United States in projects of Western imperialism, and, and it benefits uh, on its own terms, Canada does. Um, so a lot of my work has been sort of centered around that, um, and I, I wrote a book specifically about Canada's uh, role in supporting the, the military coup in Honduras, 
uh, in 2009. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the Obama-Hillary Clinton regime was also very much involved with that, but Canada took a lead role in, uh, in supporting the overthrow of a progressive government in, in Honduras and, and, and then sustaining a, a military uh, regime that ruled for more than a decade there. Uh, and then my second book was a kind of uh, broad uh, overview of Canadian history, uh, Canadian uh, foreign relations in the world, in which I argued that um, Canada's founding genocidal colonial policy with respect to Indigenous nations here was the kind of blueprint for uh, Canada's uh, policy in the rest of the world. Um, and that if you sort of, if you understand the core principles of colonialism, uh, then you understand basically what Canada has done uh, in the rest of the world for the rest of its history. Um, and I guess to, to sort of sum that up before turning it over to Nikhil, um, the, the, the central argument that I made in the book was that Canada's colonial project had two pillars. One was material, uh, economic, and that is, you know, this place was founded in order to do capitalism. Um, this place was created, uh, the land was taken, uh, and, and it was important that the land itself be taken because the land was um, destined to be transformed into private property, which it of course was not under the indigenous nations that uh, uh, governed here before. Uh, the land is transformed into private property uh, and, and profits are extracted from it, both from the land and from the labor that would then be exploited on that land. Um, and that was a central material compulsion of the creation of Canada. Canada was created in order to facilitate that process. Um, the second pillar, of course, is ideological. Uh, and it's the, the sort of white supremacist um, colonial imagination, uh, which is this idea that, uh, you know, white people were providentially destined to take over this land, uh, and in fact to take over the world and to become, uh, you know, the, the de facto rulers of the world, um, because, uh, as this ideology claimed, white people were smarter, uh, more advanced, uh, you know, you know, technologically further ahead, uh, politically further ahead, uh, and so on. That they had the essentially that that uh, the white people of Europe were um, the furthest along the civilizational ladder, and everyone else was behind in, in uh, some way. And of course, there's a complicated uh, racial hierarchy that white uh, people created to sort of place everyone else. Um, but, but it all rests on the assumption that, that white Europeans were uh, at the forefront of civilization, everyone else was behind, and that therefore justified uh, colonialism, imperialism, the process by which white people, uh, white nations, uh, conquered, enslaved, uh, killed, uh, and, and ultimately dominated uh, people in the rest of the world. So that's Canada's uh, kind of foundations. Uh, and I think, um, you know, my argument is that that's actually what Canada has continued to do ever since then. Um, so I guess that would be my broad overview of my, my view of imperialism. Um, and we can sort of talk about how sport gets woven into that. I, I think um, I would say that um, everything that Tyler just said about Canada is obviously also true about the United States. Um, I'm a historian of the United States, and my work has focused on uh, thinking about the place of uh, racial order and imperial 
um, power in the shaping of the history of the United States broadly. Um, so um, the question of empire tends to be elided when we talk about the United States, um, probably much like it has been in talking about the history of Canada. Um, obviously, the American empire is something that I think exists, uh, and it's something that has had different iterations, and it has different uh, strategies and tactics associated with its development. Um, so rather than talk specifically about the books I've written, maybe it would be useful to just talk a little bit about those. Um, like Tyler said uh, regarding the history of Canada, the United States begins as a project that's about the establishment of capitalism in North America and the extraction of value um, through the commodification of land, which involves the dispossession of the aboriginal inhabitants of that land. Um, and then, of course, the United States also uh, is a country, unlike Canada, um, that involves mass, that, that engages in mass enslavement of African captives who are brought to work in the production of agricultural commodities, um, which then becomes part of uh, the historical development of the United States and creates the United States uh, as, a, as a slave power as well as a, a colonial power. Uh, and slavery and colonialism in, in this sense are, 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 are interlinked in the origins of American capitalism going forward. Uh, now, both of these projects, of course, engender opposition, uh, they engender various kinds of conflicts. Uh, they have continuities, of course, but they also have breaks. Um, and there are, there are major breaks in the, the history of the United States that I think we have to attend to when we think about what we mean by the American empire. Um, so in one sense, the American empire is about the history of territorial expansion. So it's a colonial project. Um, in another sense, the American empire is about um, the continued effort to um, extract value from labor. So um, uh, enslavement, but then also the transition to um, an industrial form of labor that involves um, the drawing of populations into the United States industrial machine um, from other parts of the world. So mass immigration. And then eventually, in the uh, 20th century, the emergence of the United States as a global empire, or as an empire that has global ambitions, um, not rooted in the idea of the conquest, necessarily, of territories that are then held um, as colonies, although the United States does that as well. Uh, but the pattern of the American empire in the 20th century um, is predicated more on the idea of um, informal power, uh, power that's exerted through economic means and obviously periodic military intervention uh, rather than direct control. And to bring it back to where I began, that's, um, that's why it's kind of a challenging thing to talk about the American empire, especially in the contemporary period or the period in which most of us have grown up where 
American empire tends to be concealed behind um, euphemisms like uh, global leadership or uh, the rules-based international order that comes out of World War II and that the United States is cent a central architect uh, of. Um, and these, these, these notions seem to suggest a kind of anti-imperial uh, imperative, which is to say the idea that the world is now organized uh, along the principles of uh, formally equal nation states that have um, the rights of self-determination, right? So that seems to be an anti-imperial principle. So what does it mean to think of the post-war period in which American global power is ascendant as a, a kind of a new moment in the history of empire? Um, so, so my point really again is, is that when we think of something like imperialism, we're looking at a, 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 an array of, of different kinds of strategies and tactics, uh, from the formal colonialism uh, that characterized indigenous dispossession, um, to the construction of uh, informal uh, uh, control and rule through periodic military intervention as the U.S. Uh, practiced in the Western Hemisphere really from the beginning of its history, certainly from the early part of the 19th century um, to the present, um, to the period of a, of a kind of a global empire um, governed more by the establishment of rules, alliances, partnerships, again with a kind of a military carapace around it, but also mostly through the exercise of a kind of preponderant uh, economic power. And of course, that's what we're seeing now uh, as the United States is able to leverage uh, its power within the, uh, the global financial system to uh, essentially create um, a regime of sanctions that punishes um, the, the Russians for their invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so so that's really the American empire, um, and it's not the only empire, right? I mean, I think also when we're talking about imperialism, um, we're talking about uh, more that there's more than one, right? There isn't a single imperialism. The world has been created by um, competition among imperial states, cooperation among imperial states uh, that have in turn used these different kinds of tactics in their own historical development. Thanks to both of you. That's that's really a spectacular framework for us to to think within uh, here. And I mean, we want to get to sport, uh, but I have to say, but before we do that, um, I, I almost I, I can't help but kind of I think ask the question really. Okay, so you you've chart you've both charted how imperialism has shaped the world, right? Shaped the world that we see in front of us today. Um, and as you pointed out, Nikhil, which I think is so important to keep in mind, it gets lost in some of the sort of discursive articulations around imperialism, that there are multiple imperialisms, right? And, and that we have to see those sort of contradictions as they unfold. Um, but is is the sort of U.S. Canadian model of imperialism in crisis right now, I guess, is a question. You know, there's this talk about the collapse of the American empire and it's sort of associated, but not identical, as you pointed out, Tyler, Canadian empires. 
are these empires in a way collapsing? And and one reason I'm asking that, I, I think it must be on both of your minds, on my mind right now. Um, you know, the, the horrific events that we saw in Texas um, at with the the just the, the atrocity of the school shooting. Um, and this makes me think of Patrick Blanchfield's work around um, gun violence and the connections that he makes between you know, gun violence and larger questions of imperialism and the ways in which like the violence that is essential to imperialism, right? Uh, and the violence, which is supposed to be, according to the logic of imperialism, overseas as part of the process of extracting value. Um, how we kind of, well, we see that violence at, so quote unquote, at home here for Americans um, manifesting. And I mean, there's always been violence. That's part of, there's always been violence. That's what you were saying, Nikhil, both you, you and Tyler were both saying like, the formation of these settler colonies, you know, it involves imperial violence abroad. It involves violence against racialized indigenous people at home, so to speak. Um, it's all violence, but it's hard not to feel like this increasing level of violence here. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just quite frankly, it's just on my mind, right? The horror of that violence the, in its starkest possible terms that, you know, I am not normally confronted with in my day-to-day -day life. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this sort of question of imperialism in crisis. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's a great question and, and, um, you know, um, I really enjoyed Nikhil. I thought your description and your kind of the way you laid out American imperialism and, and projects of empire was really good. And I agree with basically everything you said. And, uh, you know, I would, uh, to answer your question, Nathan, I think what I would say is, um, I don't know that there is increasing violence in this moment. I don't know that that would be true. I mean, and you pointed this out too, but, you know, if you were to grab any moment in, in the history of capitalist empire you know, over the last 150 years, um, you would find horrific violence. Um, what is different, I think, about this moment is that the violence seems more um, chaotic uh, and and seems to often blow back against even uh, the people who normally might be, uh, you know, the, the the perpetrators of violence. What I mean is, you know, in, in the 1950s and 60s during the civil rights um, uh, movement, the freedom movement, uh, there was a huge amount of violence um, <clears throat> in in response to that. But it was it was you know the white ruling classes reasserting, uh, you know, their 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 power and their perceived loss of power because of the civil rights movement. Um, in this case, while we do have that, those forms of reactionary violence, there's also kind of a, a chaotic violence that is playing out. Um, you know, you could even say that the COVID crisis over the last couple of years and the handling of it in North America, you know, basically throwing everyone to the wolves and saying, you know, good luck. Um, that itself is a kind of chaotic um, violence that may well be a signal of empire in decline. Um, the one other thing I would add to this, I think the, the part that I feel most solid on is to say this, we're clearly entering a period, a new, a new period of inter-imperial rivalry. Uh, Nikhil mentioned like that there are multiple imperial systems and that's always been true. It's especially true in particular moments, right? There was a particular moment in the early 20th century where there was, you know, a pole of capital around the British Empire 
and, and one growing around the German Empire, and these, these two poles of imperial power were destined to clash. And of course they do in the First World War, and by extension in some ways the Second World War. Uh, we're in one of those phases now where there is a rival uh, imperialist bloc uh, rising and has been for 30 years, uh, centered around China, but obviously, uh, you know, Russia is a part of that block, and there are other countries that at various times have been connected to that that rival imperial block. That conflict is obviously coming to a head, whether it, you know, plays out in a dramatic war in the next 10 years or in a gradual, you know, conflict that stretches over 30 years, I, I don't know, but it is clear that the the U.S. centered North American uh, imperial system is under threat from a, a imperial rival, um, and I think that by itself is is causing certain fissures. Uh, I don't know, Nikhil, if if that resonates with you, or if you want to maybe take it in a different direction. I I agree completely with what you just said. I think um, I think we are in a in a period in which we're now seeing the emergence of inter-imperial rivalry. And I was just, in fact, reading this morning Anthony Blinken's comments on China, where he essentially says exactly this, you know, that, um, I mean, of course, he frames it in terms of a defense of the rules-based international order against, you know, what they call the revisionist power, right, of China and Russia, but especially China, uh, now the, the 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 power that wants to undo that order, um, but he makes the point which I think is is very telling. He says this is the first time we faced a power that has the means, the capacity, the economic might, the military um, uh, and technological um, ability to 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 make a real bid, you know, to construct a different kind of order, right? Um, there was a kind of order that came out of World War II um, under the most powerful nation state in the world, the United States, uh, which was an order that reconstructed the terms of inter-imperial relationships that had grown um, fractious and destructive in the period between World War One and World War Two, the kind of Thirty Years' War that unfolded, engulfed Europe especially, but also the world spilled over into the world. Uh, and part of the vision of reconstructing the world uh, of inter-imperial uh, rivalries was to create a new kind of what what Kautsky had called an ultra-imperial kind of comity, uh, with the United States at the apex of the pyramid, right, and with uh, the rest of the kind of imperial powers, Japan, Germany, France, Great Britain, the Netherlands, um, Portugal, Spain to a lesser degree, um, pushed along the path of formal decolonization, really by the United States, of course, in part, right? Uh, and then the strategic framework for um, creating this new system uh, became the constructions that we now associate with the Cold War, right? Where the struggles for independence and decolonization, which were resisted by the imperial powers to, to, to varying degrees, 
um, the British in Malaysia or the Dutch in Indonesia or the Portuguese in, um, in, 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 in uh, Southern Africa. Um, all of these countries are, are, are the French, you know, which and, and all of these countries in some ways, not all of them, but certainly the French and the British still have a kind of imperial uh, pretensions and kind of the remnants of their empires, right? Uh, but the United States is really calling the shots, and the United States is really uh, deciding to some degree through the exercise of its own preponderant power what the shape of this system is going to be, right? And of course, that involves then major wars that the United States fights in order to keep uh different countries that are beginning to assert their own independence and their own national projects uh, within the orbit of the system that the United States is constructing. That's why what happens in Korea is so important. That's why what happens in Southeast Asia is so important, because these are seen as, as um, part of a, a system that needs to be preserved. And if these countries are allowed to, in some ways, exit the system by joining another block, um, uh, the 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 emerging kind of communist bloc, um, uh, the 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 whole thing won't hold together, right? The free world won't hold together. Um, but it's a it's a it's a complicated uh, project, and it's a very ambitious project because it really does involve subordinating uh, the formerly kind of. Um, um, colonial projects of the of the European powers; those have to come to an end, right? Um, so, so it's a it's a we could spend obviously a long time talking about how to understand the relationship between the Cold War and imperialism, but it's a it's a new kind of empire that is being constructed, and of course, the Soviet bloc itself. Is a is an is a kind of a rival imperial system, but one with much much less power and much more defensively constructed against the encroachment and the expansion of the kind of world system that the United States is trying to refashion through its own through its own um, a kind of military and economic power after World War Two. So um, so I think that's the that's the kind of backdrop to what we are now experiencing, right? Because, because that Cold War empire, right, which uh, seems to be something that is um, finally breaking through after 1989 um, and achieving a kind of real, real kind of global reach with the demise of the Soviet bloc, um, is actually at that point uh, beginning to transform into something else, right? Um, and it's beginning to transform into something else um, in part because the system that is constructed under this auspices is the system we call capitalism, right? And so we have to talk about empire and capitalism together. The purpose of creating an empire is, as Tyler said at the very beginning, um, is really for the purpose of creating capitalist property relations uh, to be able to extract value from land, 
from resources, from labor. I wanted to jump in, Nikhil, because of this stuff you were saying is so great. And, and, and you know, it, it got me thinking, especially when you were talking about uh, the, the transformation from the old colonial European empires to the U.S.-based imperial system. And what's, what's really interesting about that sort of in terms of my contribution is that Canada is in such a complicated role uh, in that process because, of course, Canada is, you know, originally essentially just a, an outgrowth of the British Empire. There is no, you know, revolution uh, in Canada. There's no moment at which Canada has any meaningful break from the British Empire. And ideologically, uh, the Canadian ruling class is still very British. Um, and so during that period you're describing, uh, you know, the, the Malaysia, uh, what the British called the Malaya emergency, the, the uprising in Indonesia, uh, you know, struggles against Portuguese colonialism in Angola and Mozambique, in all of these cases, Algerian resistance to French colonialism and so on, Canada sides with the Europeans, and not just rhetorically, um, but also materially. Canada's providing aid and weapons. You know, literally, it's Canadian-made fighter jets that are provided free of cost to France to conduct its war in Algeria uh, to, to fight against Vietnamese freedom fighters in Vietnam. And yet, at the same time, Canada is engaged in this process where it's trying to play along with the, the newly emerging U.S. empire. It's recognizing, like, Canada can, can see that the, you know, the, the winds have changed. Um, and so in various cases, Canada will then, you know, kind of shift over and side with, you know, the Americans you know, in Indonesia, for instance, where, uh, you know, the Dutch wanted to hold on. The Americans say, no, 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 we're doing it differently now. And Canada goes along with the American approach in that case. Um, and of course, the, the, this, one of the central pillars of Canadian ideology is peacekeeping. And one of the main cases that Canadians are taught about is the Suez Crisis. Canada helps to negotiate a peaceful settlement of the Suez Crisis. But this is often misunderstood um, as, oh, Canada helped negotiate between Egypt and the colonial powers. No, 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 no. Canada was helping negotiate between Britain and France and the Americans. Uh, the Suez Crisis was a, a real moment where that those two t different types of imperial projects were... Um, at loggerheads, and, and Canada steps in to ensure that the sort of Anglo-Atlantic alliance doesn't fall apart, because Canada, the Canadian ruling class, depends on its relationships to both the decaying British Empire and the emerging American Empire. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a side point to our conversation here, but I just thought it's an interesting way of thinking about, yes, another sort of cut into the imperial system and the specifically Canadian interests within that. No, I, I think that was that was fantastic. And I think both of you, well, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I think both of you really set up the, the next question um, incredibly well. And this will kind of be a long preamble, but um, honestly, one of the reasons why we set up this um, this episode is because um, I'm working on uh, reframing my dissertation into a book, like many people at my stage. And um, while my my dissertation was about sport and communist and socialist Hungary as sort of a history of everyday life, uh, towards the end, I started looking at um, how um, both athletes and state sport officials were interacting with the International Olympic Committee. And once I threw in, once I started incorporating the, the component of this international body, 
I started to kind of understand some of the dynamics that you two are talking about here in terms of how does a nation, and Hungary being a quite small nation, um, a nation on the border between East and West, but still like a, a quite small nation and, and one that um, belonged to the, the communist and later socialist bloc, but one that um, actually had a lot of cultural power because it had such a strong sport history, both during the interwar period and in the 1950s, to the extent where Hungary ends up emerging as sort of a mediator between the IOC and uh, between the Soviet Union between um, communist China and Cuba, and the IOC was also using Poland and some of the other nearby countries as well. And, and, and essentially the reframing that I'm doing for my book, whereas my dissertation was sort of a bit of cobbling together what I sort of found, like most dissertations are, with the book, what I'm trying to do is really sort of zoom out and sort of look at Hungary as a nation that was navigating two competing versions of empire. And so that's why I really appreciate how you all are teasing out these quite complicated nuances of what imperialisms can look like and how different countries navigate that. And, and what I'm seeing is that the International Olympic Committee, you know, a body that emerges in the 1890s, you know, during high imperialism, um, is really a cultural empire. Um, even and, and some scholars have looked at it that way, but not as many as I would think, as someone who was actually not trained in history of imperialism per se, but I'm kind of finding it striking that not many scholars have really looked at the IOC as a cultural empire, but also, Nikhil, as you noted, you know, the Soviet empire, which is much more diffuse than a lot of people would would sort of admit, but still kind of had its loose affiliative sort of um, organizing power over the bloc states, most notably in Hungary, 1956 is a huge moment where the Soviet Union decides to really assert its imperial authority, but is a different kind of empire that say what Britain had or had and the way the British empire changed over time, the French empire, US empire and Canadian empire, things like that. Um, but what's been really striking is sort of how challenging it's been for me to kind of uh, configure the IOC particular as a cultural empire and sort of some of the pushback that I've gotten about that, um, both in the, the field of history, sociology, sport management, and, and more. And sort of what I'm finding is that of the literature that has looked at the IOC and really sport as as, as a tool for empire, um, whether it's within the British Empire or the French French Empire is that people have looked at it as a tool of empire in colonized areas. So, you know, sport as a tool for British Empire in British India and in French Indonesia and the Philippines and, Latin, you know, and not in different places, but not as something that they are using within the quote unquote metropole or within, you know, Europe. And obviously Eastern Europe occupies a bit of a kind of unique sort of semi-peripheral position to Western Europe for sure. But but I found that really, really interesting. And um, so again, I'm looking at the IOC, um, which um, there are many other examples within sport as sort of a, a tool for colonialism. Um, but what I see within the IOC is they were, you know, the, the goal of the International Olympic Committee has always been to spread specifically Western versions of sport, Western rules, Western norms and cultural values, and that members have to adopt and, and, and sort of um, um, subsume themselves under their cultural norms in order to be accepted and order to actually belong to this body. Again, not dissimilar to like the UN, the IMF, right? All these other international organizations that, that scholars have studied. Um, 
And so I was kind of wondering, um, you know, to what extent do you see um, sport as intersecting with imperialism? And you don't have to talk about the IOC again. That's just kind of the, the research that I'm looking at. But to what extent do you see sport as intersecting within imperialism and the scope of what you study and how you understand it to be? So I guess I'll just take my turn. Um, and I don't know that I can give a specific answer yet to the question, because I think actually you know more. Joanna about sport and imperialism <laughs> than I do. Um, and when Nathan approached me to do this, he partly did it because he knows I'm a huge um, fan of so soccer, football, international soccer. And um, so it's, 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 it's as a fan that I, I kind of also enter this conversation. And I think that was part of what you guys wanted to, wanted to think about. Um, but I just wanted to kind of circle back to 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 uh, try to set up a little bit the next part of the discussion to the a question that Nathan had asked earlier about whether the U.S. empire is in decline. And I kind of wanted to suggest something maybe a little bit counterintuitive, which is that that part of what comes out of the end of the Cold War is not the sort of the beginnings of the dissolution of empire, but the kind of generalization of empire, right? That the that, that if we think of imperialism in really simple terms, it's, it's as, as, as I think Hannah Arendt put it at one point, uh, it's kind of governance without the problem of a body politic, mm. right? It's sort of the ability to govern and rule um, without needing to respond to some kind of, um, some kind of initiative um, by which people would be otherwise self-governing, right? It, it, it refuses or rules out the possibility of self-government in some sense. Um, and this is why we think of imperialism and the nation or the, the nation form or the nation state as kind of opposites, right? Mm -hmm. Or as, mm -hmm. as um, uh, somehow and a, a kind of a, kind of a, a contradiction. Uh, but of course, what we've been talking about are these kind of complicated states like the US and Canada or Britain or Germany or any any number of others that became nation states as they became empires mm -hmm. or they were already empires as they were becoming nation states right so the question of of kind of self-government and nationalism and national culture and national identity and the kind of cohesion that gives legitimacy to the idea that we are a body politic, right? Um, that is in tension with and, and, and often set against empire, right? And then there's this third layer, which we're talking about, which is these kind of international organizations and these international rules that are trying to be fair to everybody, so presumably, but that end up being kind of tools of the imperial power mm -hmm. to kind of pry open the kind of the kind of territory or country or place um, that then is forced to in various ways submit to the rule, even though it doesn't have a say in creating the rule, right? So 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 you know I think we increasingly experience the world inside the United States, right? which is a powerful country and still a more powerful country than um, any other country in the world, probably. But we experience ourselves as not really having much of a say, right? We experience ourselves as subjects 
in some ways more than citizens and that's the kind of exemplary relation of empire it's to be a subject rather than a citizen so so i think in that way i i don't know that we would i would say that empire is declining as much as i would say empire is becoming almost a more generalized kind of experience of of how people are governed in the world and how people experience uh, their relationship to government in the world. Okay, so that's just a kind of a kind of a, a thought, right? So so where then does sport come in to this 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 framing, right? Because sport in many ways um, can be a kind of uh, a place where um, you know kind of popular uh, um, enthusiasms can be expressed, you know, the idea that, that this is, um, this is, this is a kind of a real, a real expression that comes from below. Right. Um, and in that way we could say sport is, um, is, is, is the most genuine kind of popular culture. But of course, we know that the way sports are managed and controlled and manipulated and regulated is that it's a totally top-down mm-hmm. um, kind of enterprise that's massively concentrated, that's, that's very much about the extraction of value, um, uh, that's very much about mass distraction more than, more than mass politics. Um, and so in that sense, um, sport has this very kind of interesting mediating role in this very very in this very problem that I just laid out between the idea of kind of um, of kind of a self-determining ethic right which we very much associate with sports because we associate it with a kind of physical prowess and expression and training and mastery and all of these kinds of things. Um, but then at the same time, sport, that's something that is, is, is very regulated, very controlled, um, very owned in some ways, right? I mean, when you look at ownership of sports teams and all of these kinds of things uh, around the world, you can trace out all of these connections all over again, right? So, so that's not really an answer to, to the question of the relationship between sports and empire as much as it is a kind of the beginning of maybe trying to tease out what we might talk about in this, in this problem space. Absolutely, um, Tyler. Do you wanna do you wanna jump in? Uh, yeah. First, I should apologize. I actually, my, I, 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 the call was dropped for me, so I missed some of what Nikhil was saying. So I, you know, my, uh, I don't want to say too much now for fear that I will either repeat or take it in a strange, different direction. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always, it's always good to have an editor with me around. But. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think I really, uh, I appreciate the way Nikhil framed all of that. And, and you know, uh, one thing I'm going to try to do in this conversation is, is uh, speak from a kind of Canadian uh, vantage point or vantage point of being in Canada subject to the Canadian ruling class, because, um, you know, we witness Canada trying to na- navigate its own um, kind of imperial position through sport all the time. Um, you know, for those who don't know, uh, ice hockey is um, like religion in Canada, or at least it's presented that way. Um, so a lot of people in Canada who couldn't care less about hockey, but 
you wouldn't know that from Canada's kind of self-presentation. You would think that uh, every single child uh, grew up playing hockey on a pond uh, and watching the Leafs and the Canadians, uh, and and that that hockey is just an obsession for every person in this country. Um, it's not entirely true, uh, but. There is some truth in it in the sense that, that hockey is a central part of how Canada uh, maintains its kind of, um, I guess, um, its, its self-image, um, you know, as a, as a nice, good, uh, welcoming, open, progressive place um, within the international world system. So, you know, we're bombarded with, um, for instance, stories, feel-good stories about, uh, you know, immigrant families coming to Canada and, you know, it's new, everything's new and, and strange and different, but hockey is their way in and hockey is the way in which the immigrant family is able to, um, you know, make friends, feel part of the community. Of course, in, in these feel-good stories, the, you know, predominantly white rural community in question is extremely welcoming and you know and they they drink tim horton's coffee together while the kids play hockey and and you know and and eventually the immigrant father becomes coach of the team and, and you know it, it, this this whole kind of narrative about how welcoming canada is to people around the world how not racist canada is uh you know how not sexist it is because oh and their daughters play too hockey becomes the vector through which these stories about canada are told by Canadians to Canadians to reassure ourselves that we're the good guys. This is in stark contrast to the reality of both Canada and hockey. Hockey is deeply racist. Canadian hockey culture is profoundly racist and and, um, and racist in ways that relate to colonialism and imperialism. Um, I, you know, I don't, I won't describe what faces indigenous youth in hockey culture. Um, I will let listeners, um, you know, fill in the blanks, but the, the worst kinds of racism that you can imagine um, crop up in, you know, Canadian major junior leagues. That's where you, that's, you know, where this is kind of ground zero for a lot of this stuff. Um, as, a, as a matter of fact, there's a horrible story from, I believe, last summer, might have been two summers ago, um, a, a young Cree hockey player was was shot and killed by um, uh, the brother of a white hockey player. I, unfortunately, the details are, escape me right now, so I can't say if they were on opposite teams or the same team or the same league. I don't know exactly what the, the connection was in terms of the hockey side of it. Uh, I just know that they were all hockey players and that the, the Cree youth that was murdered was uh, a promising young player. Uh, and and was was killed in what was obviously a, a uh, you know an, a, an attack that had racist overtones um, and so you know that's a pr pretty extreme example but um, the construction of a Canadian identity that is not racist not sexist not colonial um, is often done through uh, you know the institution of hockey which ironically is is actually a you know a very powerful vehicle for precisely those colonial dynamics. Um, so you know as we move forward in the conversation, I think I'll probably continue to use um, you know some of these these hockey examples because they really I think they really shine through very clearly in in the Canadian context um, you know, how imperialism functions. 
Absolutely. And I think what both of your answers did is kind of really set the stage for for the, the connections that you had all already mentioned about like nationalism and imperialism, right? And how even though a lot of people, as Nikhil said, people tend to think that they are sort of um, opposite to one another, and indeed they can be, right? Sort of nationalism can be used to throw off the imperialist yoke, um, but also um, they can also work in tandem. Um, and I think, um, at least for me, and, you know, I don't know the history of uh, FIFA, the World Cup and things like that, as well as under the IOC, but to kind of go back to Nikhil, what you were saying about how, you know, we have these like um, sport organizations that sort of have this top down, not sort of, but they have this top down rule over sport, whether it is the World Cup, whether it's the Olympic Games, whether it's, you know, international athletics, uh, track and field or things like that. Um, and, and for me, um, at least in my research, I really look at the amateur rule, which there's a lot, a lot of scholarship on amateurism and amateurism and professionalism and the development of both. Um, and particularly people tend to look at class, um, especially people that are doing British history, as well as gender and race increasingly so. And uh, within the inter within the Olympics, the way I kind of see the amateur rule is that, and this, this intersects with capitalism, is that the IOC maintained this amateur rule, although they adapted some over time, but they maintained it to keep out, right, athletes and nations who could not afford to sustain the lifestyle, the training, the competitive edge that they needed to in order to actually be competitive. Um, and so this actually keeps out not only, obviously, athletes of lower class, but athletes from um, countries uh, that were formerly colonized, right, that had recently gained their independence. And whereas, you know, and when we have the rise of the Soviet Union, what they do is because these governments actually, they view sports as being a governmental importance and a way to demonstrate their, you know, the, the, the superiority of communism over capitalism, but they also see a need to actually pay athletes for their labor. They don't pay them well, but they at least pay them. And so they sort of subvert this rule by paying athletes through their workplaces, uh, which the IOC doesn't allow, but because the communist and socialist countries have a control over the kinds of communications and information they can get out, the IOC is hampered bureaucratically from actually being able to follow up and investigate what's going on in these countries and how these athletes are being paid. But during throughout the Cold War, there are these constant um, accusations of, you know, there are violations of amateurism behind the Iron Curtain, but the IOC is not actually able to investigate them. Um, they can only go through the representatives to these countries and the representatives for Hungary for the Soviet Union say, oh, no, like these are false allegations. And that's essentially as far as they can go. Go. Um, but still, they use this amateur rule, obviously, not only against these communist countries, but like I said earlier, against the countries everywhere that wanted to participate. Um, and so um, the amateur rule becomes sort of a tool for reinforcing, you know, the, the hegemony of the West to dominate the Olympic Games um, as a way to prevent countries, uh, sorry, athletes from other countries and countries from reaching the medal stage. Um, but again, to me, that's just an example of sort of how these international organizations use something such as, you know, rules that are really boosted by cultural and political and, and racial norms and capitalism as a way to maintain their colonial dominance. Um, but again, it's it's more diffuse um, to kind of go back this idea that imperialism has many forms, much more diffuse than kind of formal or official colonialism, as you all mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's um, sport. Sport is so disturbing in so many ways. Um, 
under kind of capitalist organization under the terms of kind of um, national and internationalist kind of spectacles that are really about reinforcing hierarchies um, and under the terms by which kind of kind of labor and kind of collective creativity is essentially being extracted right from um, from uh, communities that are often um, poor and disfranchised uh, but where um, sports kind of flourishes um, as one of the forms of recreation and expression that doesn't require a lot of uh, resources you know the the sort of proverbial stories of kind of you know Maradona or Pele like playing with balled up rags in the um you know in the slums of of, of Buenos Aires or uh, Sao Paulo right and then becoming these kind of uh you know international icons um scouted by these you know which by by what is now basically like a a whole you know a whole kind of kind of kind of system of kind of organized intelligence scouring the world for for talented players that can be brought into these kind of uh, training machines, you know, that sort of then hone them and find and 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 refine them, and in some cases inject them with hormones and 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 develop their their bodies um, to to uh, to perform at this extremely high level, you know, that then reaps absolutely fabulous profits and rewards you know for the individual player and their family of course as well but mostly for the owners right um and it, and it's 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 when when you when you actually look into these the structure of sports and ownership you know you really can see how it is um it is the worst kind of exploitative enterprise in that sense um and one that is nonetheless um something that we can't, I mean, I speak for myself, uh, can't help but invest in, you know, like I, I'm, I'm excited to watch um, the, 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 the skillful display, right, of, of these players, right, because I love the sport, because I learned the sport, and I'm talking here about soccer again, I learned the sport in my own community growing up. Right. And it was just part of what we did. And it was essentially free. Right. It was play. Right. It wasn't um, and it wasn't it wasn't something we imagined as a pathway to riches. Right. And I think what's happened with the international reconstruction of sport, according to these kind of uh, national racial imperial hierarchies. Right. Is is that that kind of sport localism that kind of ability to kind of think about what it would mean to sort of nourish these sorts of resources um and to allow them to kind of um to kind of exist without a sort of this kind of funnel that um that tries to suck out the talent and kind of suck out the um the um the the kind of the kind of resources from the kind of the, the the local areas um um you know it it 
it, it, it's a it's a it's a it's like a travesty right and you know if, if you if you look at like what's happened in england to the organization of soccer in england which we used to be very kind of and still is to some degree very kind of local kind of club based but the resources for the lo the at the local level tend to be kind of again sort of sort of denuded and then increasingly concentrated at the kind of hot, at the kind of apex of the sport Right. And that's kind of what's happened in all aspects of our of our kind of social life. I mean, that to go back to the earlier point I was making, um, the way in which we all kind of now exist under the sort of the sort of imperial or an imperious kind of power of kind of concentrated wealth and rule. Right. Um, and and it's it's terribly sad. So are there are there countervailing tendencies in this of course you know i mean sport is a kind of popular culture right and and it, as a kind of popular culture under commodified terms it does still have some of these elements of kind of popular expression and and collective um collective interaction that um that can sometimes be extremely meaningful and even transformative in certain places i mean i think of like the role of someone like Mo Salah in Liverpool, you know, I mean, he's Egyptian, he's a Muslim. He like, he, 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 he prays before the games. He pray, he, he bows his head to Allah when he scores a goal. And here he is in, in, you know, in, in Northern England. Um, and the impact of his, just his presence on, um, you know, Islamophobia in Liverpool has been absolutely profound. I mean, they worship this Muslim player in Northern England, you know, in a place where uh, they've been encouraged to essentially fear and loathe Muslims. Now, does that mean that Salah is not sometimes just an exception or that the fear and loathing of Muslims doesn't continue? Of course it does, right? But, but, but there are also ways in which sport creates the possibility in, in, in certain ways for a more cosmopolitan sensibility, right? And even a sensibility that can cut a, cut against the grain of, of, of different kinds of nationalist enthusiasms, right? As people are really often much more attached to their clubs that they support than to their countries. Um, you know, I think some of those things are, are, are actually good things, but like most things we're talking about here, it's a, uh, it's a it's a mess and and it's 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 of course not an accident that the best and richest teams in the world right now are owned by uh oligarchs right they're owned by the by by the qatari group that's they own paris saint-germain um the um the the the, the uae uh owns manchester city um until recently um roman abramovich owned chelsea he's a, a russian oligarch I mean these these very very rich um, uh, uh, men who are tied to um, despotic um, state powers um, and often to the, the the worst kind of extractive industries, you know, uh, laundering their money through uh, international sports teams that become kind of their 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 vehicles for for fun and recreation and kind of give them a new reputation as people delivering something that the public wants 
um, but essentially just continuing to enrich themselves. I mean, all of that is just so disgusting, right? And it, and and I think when you start to learn about it and think about it a little bit more, it, it at least for someone like me who who loves the sport, you know, it really really turns me off from um, from wanting to 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 watch or participate. But that that's that's just me. <laughs> No, it's it's not just you. I think it's yeah. it's it's, <laughs> it's all of us. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think that's exactly it. And and you know, I really like the way that you've um, kind of pointed to the contradiction that sports um, and, and the sporting world straddles because it is it is I think you know exit like in, in it's very it is innately something that can transcend. Uh, capitalism and imperialism because play predates capitalism and imperialism right play is just a fundamental thing people have done and and it's fundamentally fun (laughs) and 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 it's something that we do and we exalt in and we exalt in um in doing it ourselves and watching others do it and so on and so it always has that possibility of being better than and exposing the the stupidities and cruelties of the existing uh you know world apparatus and yet it's also uh, thoroughly co-opted into that you know and you've described i think you've described that stuff really well and you know when you were talking about mosala you know i was thinking about uh the french national team and the way and this is true of many european uh, national teams but you know it's been talked about a lot with respect to france the way that um, players who uh, who are playing for the French team but are not white French uh, players, you know, Zinedine Zidane, obvious example, uh, and he talked about this as an Algerian. Uh, you know, he when he played well and when France won, he was French, and all French people you know, were bigger than their, you know, racial biases, and they came together to celebrate France, which Zidane was the center of. When they played poorly, when Zidane was responsible for them losing, suddenly he was Algerian, he was Arab, he was not one of the French, he was not part of the nation. Um, and I think that that is, in some ways, that encapsulates the contradiction, where, you know, sport can transcend imperialism, it can transcend colonial ideology, um, and it can also then very suddenly uh, reinforce them, you know, just just snap right back. Um, and and this is certainly true, you know, in the Canadian context around uh, around hockey. Uh, I, I think there's so many ways in which, um, and it's not just hockey. Come to think of it, it's actually it's probably a stronger in, impulse in other sports than hockey. But the idea of the the poor young you know, athlete who, you know, like you say, plays soccer in the slums, uh, you know, and, and rises to become a great star. I mean, Luis Suarez is, is for me, probably one of my favorite footballers. And, you know, and I like his story. I like his story about being a poor kid uh, from Uruguay and, and, and getting to where he gets to and so on. Um, and, and yet, especially in a sport like hockey, but this is increasingly true of most sports, um, it's pretty rare that yeah. that athletes actually come from poverty uh, and come from poor communities because the sports have become so professionalized 
Um, there is such a, an apparatus, there's so much gatekeeping around who can get into the various camps and, and, and so on, skills training and so on, um, that actually it's becoming more of a middle class, middle and upper class uh, you know, thing. Uh, certainly for those that get to the highest levels. And th there's irony in this because we are still taught to celebrate those rags to riches versions of the story. Um, Nathan, I know you're a big basketball fan, so this will resonate with you, right? I mean, there's, we love the stories about, you know, the kid who grew up playing shooting hoops in the ghetto, you know, and, and, and now look at where he's gotten to. Um, and in Canada, there's a lot of that kind of, yeah, you know, started out on the pond and, and, you know, mom driving me to practice and now here I am. And we love these stories. And yet, increasingly, those stories are impossible. Um, in Canadian uh, hockey in general uh, is extremely white uh, and, and it remains extremely white in large part because it has a racist culture, yes, but also because um, it's extremely expensive to get to the highest level. So, to the extent that um, you know, non-white players, indigenous players, uh, you know, immigrant uh, youth are, are playing hockey, they rarely, or I should say disproportionately do not have um, access to the same kind of opportunities to rise up through the ranks of the sport. Um, and, and by the way, while I'm thinking of it, I want to correct something I said earlier. I said that it was a Cree uh, hockey player who was murdered. Uh, I, that was wrong. It's a Siksika hockey player. His name was Christian Ayungman. He was 24 years old. Um, and uh, the murder was not specifically related to a, a hockey issue. It just was the case that he was a, a promising hockey player. Um, but, you know, it does, I think, still, it is still, I think, a relevant example for our discussion because you know, so much of uh, certainly the way that hockey is framed in Canada is that it's framed as this this uh, space in which people can be uh, welcomed into Canadianness and participate in uh, you know the the national game and the national sport and and all of the ways that Canada does good in the world are, are reflected by hockey. But Canada doesn't do good in the world. Canada does a huge amount of harm in the world. Um, as part of its imperial projects. And hockey does too. I mean, hockey uh, uh, creates enormous harm for poor communities and for poor people. Um, and it flattens out uh, those realities. It, it, it um, is used as a vehicle to uh, effectively lie to us about what Canada is. Um, so, you know, that's something that we can, we can talk about a bit more, but I thought... Uh, you know, especially given what you said, Nikhil, about the the kind of um, the ways in which sport can transcend these things. I think it's important to, to acknowledge that it does both, right? It transcends in certain ways those problems and then also radically reinforces them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, you know, what you're both getting at, and I, I think it is so important how you, you both talked about this idea of sport as play, right? Um, but what we're seeing in all these examples is that like sport as play has been colonized, right? It's been colonized by capitalism, of course, in all these fundamental ways that you've laid out today. And it's been colonized by the nation and by a nation that engages in imperial projects. Um, and, and by the way, especially if you're thinking about soccer, for, for any listeners interested, um, I, I recommend checking out the book by Eduardo Galliano, uh, Soccer in Sun and Shadow, which is a really poetical treatment of kind of how the play of football um, is really... Um, you know, corrupted and commodified uh, within imperialist capitalist structures. 
Um, but I mean, just, I do think it's really important to think about the ways in which, you know, these things are so imbricated that like sport directly serves the ends of the nation, right? Of the imperial nation. You know, Paul Gilroy has written about how, in fact, like the spectacle of sport, like Olympic spectacle, et cetera, it fueled the Nazi project, right? The spec, the, the ways in which, um, to use Benedict Anderton's language, right? The imagined community, the ways in which people are interpolated into the imagined community that is the nation, it happens through sport, right? And it happens through sport in part because it is this like really emotional moment where people can be participate in something and kind of have this sense that they are part of something larger than themselves, something that frankly like satiates a lot of needs and desires they have that are denied by capitalism and by these imperialist systems. And then the nation kind of fills them up, fills that, that need and those gaps and gives them something to compensate. Um, but that thing, that, that, that compensatory thing is, as you've both been articulating, you know, so profoundly harmful. And actually sport also, and we see this in its contemporary iterations, sport teaches them the value of imperialism. I mean, if you just think about any American sporting events, right? I mean, and the, the Super Bowl being the kind of iconic example, but the way in which militarism, right, is completely incorporated into the spectacle itself so that, like, we can't have the 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 fundamentally violent pastime that is football without also like the, the air force, right. Swooping over um, the stadium, for instance, right. Uh, in order to kind of like, and the red, white, and blue everywhere. And just this way in which, you know, during, you know, this is what the, the, the America's long war, like this is, this is all happening as American planes and tanks, whatever else are causing immense harm across the world. Right. Um, and, and it's teaching Americans to participate in that project and to become part of it. Yeah, and you know, if I could take my turn early on this one before I'll say a short piece before passing over to Nikhil on this, like this is something I really, really focus on with respect to Canada because exactly what you're describing, the jets flying over the football stadium, um, Canada embraced that approach within within hockey, but also it does it, you know, at the Blue Jays games and at the baseball games and and in the CFL and elsewhere, but especially in hockey during, uh, you know, the war on terror, and, and in particular Canada was uh, focused on the war in Afghanistan. Canada effectively occupied that country for 20 years, and, and we were inundated through hockey. We were inundated with propaganda about uh, the war. Um, obviously, Don Cherry, uh, for those who don't know, Don Cherry is a right-wing hockey pundit who uh, routinely just bled into just right-wing politics in general in his weekly segments um, and and he would co constantly be talking up uh, the troops he would compare hockey to war the hockey players are like the troops the troops are the true heroes um, you know anytime a Canadian soldier died there would be a memorial uh, during the hockey broadcast for the soldier uh, all the various uh, uh, hockey teams had military appreciation ceremonies. They'd wear the camel versions of their jerseys. You know, Maple Leaf Gardens or whatever it's called now, they'd have uh, soldiers rappelling down from the rafters, you know, metal music pumping, crowd going wild. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it was an incredible uh, moment of like the manufacturing of consent for those wars. And it was the right demographic, the demographic of sports you know was a good fit for the demographic of who are we going to get to back the troops um you know and 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 the discipline around it was was and remains so intense 
Um, and I remember a friend of mine who was a, a writer for the Vancouver Canucks um, didn't stand during the national anthem at some point. Uh, I guess he was at a game and he was working on something and he was preoccupied, he was a scout. Uh, and anyway, someone snapped a picture of him not standing for the anthem and this became a, a Twitter uh, meltdown. All of Canucks Twitter melted down, flipped out on this guy for his inability or unwillingness to stand for the national anthem. So it was this incredibly disciplinary moment, uh, nationalist moment, pro-war, ne never a discussion uh, about the impacts of the war. As a matter of fact, I was part of a group in the mid-2000s that tried to um, initiate that conversation by issuing a fake press release. Uh, it was a fake Toronto Maple Leafs press release saying that, that you know, this year, instead of simply memorializing the troops, we're going to also remember the you know, hundreds of thousands of Afghan civilians who've been killed in this war. Uh, and of course, Trump, Maple Leafs immediately issued a corrective saying, no, 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 we are not going to honor the Afghan victims of the war. Oh, God. <laughs> um, you know, which was what we expected and illustrated our point. Um, one final thought on this before I, I pass it over to Nikhil. This, this kind of nationalist spectacle and imperialist spectacle um, became even more egregious, I would argue, in the last couple of years because two things happened. Uh, one was last summer um, the bodies of children who were killed at Canadian residential schools uh, were um, rediscovered. They, they, they'd been known about before, but they were rediscovered and, and more, in a more detailed way um, the, the numbers, the, the thousands of Indigenous children killed in those schools became known and became a public dialogue. Um, this prompted uh, the, the, especially the Canadian markets to make more of an effort to seem uh, aware and inclusive with respect to Indigenous issues. And so they, a, a number of hockey arenas instituted a land acknowledgement, um, which is a kind of superficial gesture at the start of a meeting or sporting event in this case, to say, you know, we acknowledge that this game is being played on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee or, or whomever the case may be. But the, the irony was that the land acknowledgement would take place, uh, people would you know, quietly listen to the land acknowledgement, and then it would immediately cut to, please stand for the national anthem. So you would do this acknowledgement that, the, you know, that this is traditional indigenous territory, immediately then assert whose territory it is now. It is Canada's territory now. Um, and this was, I think, especially uncomfortable um, just over the last few months when um, the, the far right in Canada mobilized, uh, particularly in Ottawa, um, and, and there was the largest, I would argue, the largest kind of uh, fascist and far right mobilization that Canada has seen in a really long time, uh, and all around the flag and the national anthem, to the point where a lot of even mainstream Canadians were saying things like, gee, I, I feel uncomfortable about the flag now. Um, and, and hockey, you know, really continued to reinforce the flag, the nation, the anthem, and so on through all of this. Um, so yeah, I, I think what, you, what you're articulating, Nathan, is spot on, and it, it really rings true in the context uh, of hockey. That's a great, that's a great comment. And I, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting when we try to think about sport and dissent, you know, um, how it can be recuperated so easily to the um, the structures of kind of 
power, authority, and control that we that we see. I mean, every English soccer league game now begins with all the players kneeling at the beginning of the game, right? Which is obviously the the um, the protest against police violence and racial violence that uh, Colin Kaepernick and others really um, innovated in the United States. And of course, Ka- Kaepernick you know, never recovered from that. I mean, he was, he was, he was punished and pushed out of the sport as a result. Um, and, and he obviously stands as a, as a, as a kind of figure who, um, who, who tried to use the platform that he had, he had developed to, to dissent, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare, um, in the history of sport to to find that you know i mean every so often cristiano ronaldo will will you know wave a palestinian flag or or say something about um the colonization of palestine um you know every so often now you know you'll hear um someone in sports speak up in the way that say steve kerr did the other night before the golden state warriors game uh, after the shooting in Texas, to basically call out the Senate for its failure to make any movement on um, gun control that might actually prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. Uh, but for the most part, the the incentive structures, uh, the massive riches that um, are kind of awarded to those at the top, uh, really uh, buy their silence, you know. Um, and you know, the figure that I always think about, who really stands out in the history of post-war sport, as someone who, um, you know, basically took huge, huge risks with his career and even with his freedom, was was Muhammad Ali, who, you know, came out. Uh, against the Vietnam War and lost several years of his very flourishing and kind of rising boxing career um, to to take a, an anti-imperialist stand. And of course, it made him a, an international hero. Um, and it's one of those cases where you again see how sports and anti-imperialism can kind of kind of come together in 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 these moments of of kind of dissent and um, and where 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 someone who has who has achieved uh, a kind of a kind of visibility through their mastery of a sport um, uh, is willing to actually also be a human being and assert their their values and their politics, uh, but for the most part, sport is supposed to be a depoliticized realm of enjoyment that then is annexed to various kinds of dominant politics, whether it's nationalist politics. Or whether it's the um, the kind of um, business as usual um, of the sports industry that's really primarily interested in extracting the dollars of fans um, and extracting the labor of athletes. Um, and when you really start to look again, as I was saying before, at the structure of sports ownership. And the 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 way these various kinds of sports are organized, both at the at the local, national, and then international level, um, you really just see the same kind of imperial and class and racial uh, structures that organize life in these imperial nation states, right? You you often see these very wealthy conservative white owners. Um, you see um, 
maybe in football and basketball, you see a lot of black athletes, uh, but the average life of a football player in the NFL, I think is less than four years. Um, we know that um, a huge percentage of players suffer debilitating injuries, um, including uh, concussions that destroy their cognitive capacities for the rest of their lives. Um, uh, some, some, some make it through unscathed, some make a lot of money, um, but most really are just cannon fodder, right? Uh, and the NFL, it seems to me, is, is really the, the, the exemplary sport of the American empire in this sense. Um, you know, a sport that really emerged in the context of a kind of industrial slaughter as a kind of a metaphor for industrialization. Um, and that became the sport really through which the kind of spectacles of American military power and nationalism are kind of dramatized again and again every year, right? Um, as we watch the jets fly over the stadiums and the Super Bowl and so on and so forth. But then the kind of the kind of on the ground realities of those sports are just a kind of carnage, you know, um, an absolute wreckage of um, kind of human lives. Um, and I think that, 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 that I, you know, I have no real respect for American football. Maybe that's going to get me in trouble with some people here because I know that it is, it is really the, um, I mean, listeners, you know, it really is, it really is a sport that encourages a tremendous kind of, kind of fandom and investments, including many of my relatives who go uh, regularly every, every week during the season to, to Giants games and tailgate and do all of this kind of stuff. And I'm really not trying to, you know, steal anyone's enjoyment of this. And I, I think other things I've said throughout this uh, conversation should indicate that I, I, I understand where that enjoyment comes from. It comes from something very authentic that sports taps into that we've 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 mentioned several times now. You know, kind of kind of the application of your of your physical body and your mental kind of uh, kind of ability to sort of think and strategize to to a game, right? And 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 that is just such a wonderful um, kind of kind of human um, uh, 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 expression, you know, and, and when, when people achieve and accomplish at the highest levels of their sport, it's really phenomenal and inspiring, you know, and I think one of the questions that you had probably wanted to turn to, and maybe it would be a good question to turn to as we think about closing this conversation, you know, is something about, can we reimagine sport in a way that, um, that, that in which those qualities really are the ones that um, are are given the most air, right? Rather than what we've been talking about here, which is the way in which uh, the organization of sports through kind of kind of national, imperial, and kind of capitalist um, uh, sort of imperatives um, are 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 actually about. Um, uh, uh, the, the 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 sort of extraction and the um, and the uh, appropriation right of the of the collective energies and creativities that actually make sport worthwhile in the first place. Uh, I think it's a great place to end because I do think there are these 
these potential openings uh, and they, they crop up in strange moments uh, and, and yet they do, they cut through because I agree with everything that Kit was just saying about um, you know, the ways in which sport can suddenly transcend all of those all of those disciplines that are being imposed on sport. You know, I, one that jumps to mind for me is is um, at, when you get into the weeds of, of fandom for particular teams, you will almost always discover that most of the fans despise the ownership of the team. Now, yes, that's right? true. Right now, now they they also are are angry at the players, and they're angry at the coach and the GM and and the training staff, and you know, and the assistant coaches and so on. But there is this sense, especially when the team is not doing well, that the buck stops with the owner. And, and okay, so I've already probably outed myself. I'm a Canucks fan, which is a really embarrassing thing to admit publicly. But as a Vancouver Canucks fan, uh, we've witnessed just the utter collapse of what was, was in the mid-2000s, a pretty good team. And as the team tanked and tanked and couldn't rebuild and failed to rebuild, um, you know, the the... The criticism started with the coach, but then it went to the GM, and eventually it landed on the owner. Uh, and the ownership of, of the Canucks is um, this this really crass, embarrassing uh, bourgeois family in Canada. You know, the lower echelons of the of the bourgeoisie, but rich enough to own a sports franchise. They've been cited uh, and and actually fined for. Um, not providing drinking water to the migrant workers on their berry farms. Uh, they, they treat the migrant workers who work on their farms really badly, so they've been embarrassed for the fact that they are, they are really, you know, um, the worst kinds of, of uh, capitalists, and they happen to be the owners of the Canucks. And the guy is an idiot, and he tweets a lot, and he embarrasses himself on Twitter all the time. The, 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 the fan base basically understands that the team is worse because they have this idiot who owns the team, who makes the final decisions, who makes the hiring choices that keep the team shitty. And he doesn't know anything about hockey. He's just a rich guy. He's just a random rich guy that was rich enough to own a team and use it as his little toy, as you described earlier, Nikhil, the way that these oligarchs do. They just use these teams as their little vanity projects. And fans often understand that. Uh, it becomes a really good opening into, hey, maybe it's a ridiculous way to organize our society that if you're rich, you can just own everything and that you can control things, you know, that have as much meaning to us as sport. Um, so there are those openings, right? I mean, there are openings like a couple weeks ago when Brad Marchand uh, was in a scrum with Tony D'Angelo. Tony D'Angelo is a hockey player who uh, fam is famously racist. And in the scrum, Marchand was taunting him by calling him a racist. And this blew up and people loved it. And Marchand is typically, you know, a, a pest. He's someone that I, as a Canucks fan, am not supposed to like. But I loved it that he was, he was ripping on, Mar on D'Angelo for being a racist. Um, you know, you, to have an anti-racist moment in a scrum in the corner during a playoff game is, is cool. It's, it's, it's moments like that. Um, that if we could just somehow extract those moments from the rest of the apparatus around sport, there's a lot of good that can be salvaged. Um, and I think that's because the demographic of people that play sports is wide, and it's, it's a wide range, and, and invariably you're going to get interesting, critical people who are going to be drawn into the world of sport and, and can offer something really positive for us to build upon. It's just a matter of them not being disciplined into what 
the, the sports apparatus, the ruling class apparatus wants to discipline them into, which is to continue to, to, to back imperialist projects, to uncritically support the nationalisms of countries like Canada and the US, um, to uncritically do business as usual, as Nikhil said, and just you know go along with the, the kind of capitalist imperatives of the system. Um, if those can be transcended, I think sport is a, is a great um, place where that could happen. But it, it it entails work on all of our part, right? And and that's obviously always the the harder point. Absolutely. Well, both of you, thank you so much um, for your um, incredibly wise comments about um, imperialism um, and about its relationship to sport. It's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you for hosting this conversation. It was it was a lot of fun to to listen. And, and participate. Yeah, thanks so much. This was great. Nikhil, it was really nice to meet you and, and hear your comments. Likewise, Tyler.